And now, do you like Prince movies? Hey everybody, welcome to Do You Like Prince Movies? I'm Alex Papadimus. I'm Wesley Morris. We're uh, we're putting our foot in the gas this week. We are. The, no messing around. None of this. No mess. None of these shenanigans, or the shenanigans will be contained within a very small. Yeah, I was going to say there's of the show. <laughs> I don't know if we can be shenanigans free. I just think we have to be shenanigans fast. Yeah, no. It's there's a border. There's a fence around the shenanigans, and they will not spill over into the rest. We're all about. Pr- oh my god! We're blowing you these minutes said- right out. It's Pee Wee's Playhouse, though. You just said border. I have to say Donald Trump. I just have like 15 We're words. A wall that around went, the shenanigans <laughs> that runs the length of the show. I just, I can't help it. There's like a word of the day with me in this guy. Like, it's like totally Pavlovian. I hear about, I hear Latino now. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I feel like, I just want, anyway, we're not going to talk about Donald Trump. We're going to talk about Quentin Tarantino. Talking to New York Magazine's Lean Brown in this two weeks issue, the, the fall preview. I just want to say I loved th- that conversation. I, I thought this is like, I mean, whatever it, okay, this is terrible. I know I said I wouldn't bring this up again, but whatever it is people are saying they feel about Donald Trump, like speaking his mind and telling the truth and telling it the way it is, it was kind of refreshing to hear a person in the film industry. I mean, this is, tarantino's thing obviously but it just is nice to hear him like talk about (laughs) his fellow directors and about himself and and the idea like the 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 idea of the town sort of being a less longevity having movie than than american hustle because the casting was more authentic um i don't know i really liked it i liked it too i'm sort of it's interesting because i read it Right as soon as I saw it, I, I think I follow Lane Brown on Twitter, and I think I as soon as he tweeted that out, basically I read it because I was you know I I love Tarantino, I love a Tarantino interview, super psyched about Hateful Eight, all that stuff, and so I read it like in a vacuum without any reading any reactions, and then the reactions were kind of insane. I thought like it's just the the way that people because you know I think everybody probably agrees with you in the abstract, right? If you ask the question like shouldn't there be more outspoken interesting Q&As with directors where they really say what they're thinking about stuff and how express opinions and everything like, like that. Like they used to. Right. Like everybody exactly. Like and then everybody was like, "Oh, he doesn't how do, talking about TV critics like that." Like, <laughs> just people getting so His point offended. about TV critics well, go on. Just people getting so offended that you know that the, the guy is the, point- the guy who wrote the dead N word storage bit. That but TV critics, that's too far. Yeah, yeah. you know you no. can't. <laughs> there's certain things you can say and certain things you can't say, and you cannot impugn the hard work of America's uh, TV recappers and critics and stuff like that. I mean, and it's also it's like I think there's a little bit of like of context when you when you read it versus hear it. There's probably some joshing going on there that doesn't come through necessarily. Like some of those things were said in, you know, kind of sparring kind of jest, I think. Well, but even if you read it in a reverse kind of humor with a reverse kind of humorlessness, his point was just there's a certain kind of television critic. And it's true where that that gets two episodes of a show and and has to by the way certain daily criticism works, write a review. Yeah. 
without having seen i mean i don't agree with that that method but i mean a lot of critics don't have a choice they're following a model dictated to them by daily critic by daily newspaper criticism in a lot of cases right and he's thinking about it as if you were to you know watch the the first you know hour of Django Unchained and write a review of it being like, I don't see where this is going. Like, I, I, you know, his, you see where his offense comes from, obviously because he's a film director and thinks about like mm-hmm. the, the actual sort of, you know, the, the whole unit of the, the piece and everything. And also it's like, he's being asked about, you know, whether he'll make a, you know, six hour mini series someday. It's like within the context of all of that. I just thought that was funny that, you know, that all of these, all of these people, but then he's actually, did you see that he got, he got on the like awards daily wrote a piece about it and he, came in the con- the comment section and actually was like very for for like really sort of polite and reasonable but like addressed some points specifically like he did you see that no was, i did not it see was that. yesterday at some point there was a he he responded specifically to um I guess it was it was the, it was the thing about you know which of these films will stand the test of time and he was like look i named all these movies because i like all these movies that's why I chose. That's why I didn't pick these out of the air because I, you know, I, I hate the kids are all right or whatever. It's like uh, you know, these are all a lot of them were on my top ten list. But I'm talking about longevity, which is a different thing of whether or not it's a good movie. And I think that you know, it was very for Tarantino. It was very for somebody who's you know, kind of has a reputation for uh, you know, flying off the handle a little bit. I think you know, there's ten million stories about you know his sort of his temper and his defenses of his uh, ideas and opinions. And it was actually very uh, you know reasoned, measured comment thread post. I don't well, know. It right. may have been disproved as not being him, but seems like it i mean know. one of the things about that interview was that he was sort of characterizing himself as, as someone who's mellowed and matured i mean he's in his 50s he has a little bit of perspective both on himself and the world i also like this con- the reason that i think we are i wanted to talk about this interview was because it wasn't just because there were inflammatory things in it but he was actually practicing criticism yeah i mean he was actually he wasn't just starting stuff to just start it he was making points about things that that i think are worth thinking about i think this idea of longevity i don't even agree with a lot of the things that he that he that he that he said but i think that he was coming from a place of a person with an opinion and that opinion sort of cut through like bravado and and sort of um hot takeishness to actually be resonant in a way that talking about the culture that we consume is was interesting to me and and striking to me and felt true to this particular person and which in this under these circumstances is a critic who also happens to be practicing uh, you know practicing participant in an art form yeah i mean he's he keeps saying or he said over the years like that he's he's got a book of film essays in him Right. Which is who knows if it'll ever materialize. It's surprising that he hasn't done it. I know there seems to be enough enough downtime. I mean, maybe there's not. I guess there's, you know, maybe that's just like, you know, you would think given the gaps between movies, like he he said, apparently the the reason I'm sort of so obsessed with it is that at one point, who knows if it ever when it ever comes out, what will be in there. But at one point, apparently he had a 20 page defense of Brian Singer's Superman Returns. Written. Yeah, see these are the things where I'm like I'm I'm going to um 
get off the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I know because that just sounds like the internet. It just sounds like, oh, okay, we got we. Ha- I'm sure like you could find a 20 page defense of Brian Singer's Superman. But listen, look, online, Jonathan but, like, Latham is just as. I mean, I feel like there it's it done right. I mean, there is a sort of if not cogent case to be made for anything. I'm open to smart, interesting people make those cases. So I mean, I'm not I'm not dismissing that that defense of, the, of 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 Superman returns out of hand. I'm just I I think I I don't know. I should shut up. Go on. I will oh, nothing. I just I but no, you're right. I I want his uh, his disappointment artist. I want his kind of his collection of uh, sticking up for uh, maligned works or whatever it ends up being. I don't know. I'm I I just feel like that that would be that would be amazing. I've, I I I almost want that more than I want the the 6-hour miniseries that he's you know supposedly talking about everybody's like when are you going to do tv it's really weird that the you know like that this is <laughs> it, it's like you're one of the greatest movie directors ever <laughs> when are you going to do a tv show so that we can finally appreciate you the way that you're meant to be appreciated so the tv critics can appreciate you this is going to be the most insulting thing i could ever <laughs> say about tv but i'm just just understand the context in which i'm saying it Asking Tarantino a question like that with that level of enthusiasm is a little bit like asking the Clash or like the Sex Pistols when they're going to do a disco record. I just feel like he'll get around to doing a television show, but like doing it now because it's so hot and TV's it's just I don't know. It just that's kind of disappointing. I mean, I mean, did he take the question seriously or is this like speculation? Yeah, he took it. Well, he yeah, he said that it, basically the, the the thing that was exciting to him about it was the possibility. He was saying that you know that there's like you have Kerry Fukunaga directing all of True Detective season one, and you have you know somebody writing the whole season themselves. But like he would want to be the first person to write and direct an entire season of television, which is unusual, obviously for TV, where that division of labor is much more you know pronounced. I think right, right. So that was exciting. He didn't say anything about content. Or anything like that. I mean, that's you know, I think that that's far. Obviously, he's it's it's purely just speculative at, at this point. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's weird that it's like yeah, well, you do it like for for Netflix or like, it's something like like, like 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 he's making movies still. Like it's not like he can't make movies anymore, or like that there's something preventing him from doing his thing. He's making movies on film in you know glorious super seventy millimeter or whatever it is, and, and we're like, when are you going to make a show for my phone? <laughs> <laughs> right, which is, I mean, he something he would abhor doing anyway. Exactly. When so, are you going to make something I, I can watch on my shoe? Right. <laughs> Yo, my Google Glass is thirsty, man. <laughs> Google some, Glass is thirsty. When are you going to make I some, need some Tarantino up in I that need door? Some content for over the urinal screens and those little <laughs> TVs and elevators, Quentin Tarantino. Make that for me. Can you do something? Just I make need it a my hateful, hateful urinate. <laughs> it only fits in that one space. Only two guys, just Walton okay. Goggins. Yeah, I have I have two things about this interview. Okay. I mean, they're like he's got he's got uh, you know he's he's human. He's blind spots. I would say that in terms of career resurrection, if this is a thing that we're assigning him like some Midas some Midas touch, yeah. like be to be able to like revive the career of some of some forgotten classical great person. I probably have said this name in the context of Tarantino's name uh, or the Tarantino experience before, but I feel like maybe there's something I don't know about these two people. Although, I mean, just parenthetically, I don't think so. I've been in their presences 
respectively. But I feel like he and Sharon Stone would have the best time together. Wow. That would be like a, a fireworks factory explosion. I just, I, I don't like. know. Maybe it would be a disaster. And I don't know if he's the, he, he doesn't seem to be the kind of director who can work through disaster the way some, the, you know, the way, you know, Sidney Pollack and Dustin Hoffman fight on the set of Tootsie and still create Tootsie. I don't know if that would have created a good movie, but I feel like Sharon Stone and Quentin Tarantino, I don't know. I just get excited whenever I think about that. And I, I wonder if that's something that has occurred to him and how he how he would feel i mean who knows also like sharon stone of today versus the you know peak sharon stone who was kind of you know tarantinoid in her kind of opinionatedness it's like they might have both mellowed enough that it would work you know i don't think you could have two of those i I feel like that would be like two hurricanes you know at one point had it happened in like 1995 or something but like maybe at this point i don't know i think that's maybe that would be great. Know, I'm saying mellowing would be would be would be good. No, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm saying it yeah. might work for that reason. I yeah, I, I like that. You know, I, I'm I think it's dope that he cast Jennifer Jason Lee in that part in Hateful Eight. Yes. Um, yes. That finally we get. It's like Jennifer Jason Lee not playing a mom or a sister in a movie. You know, like that she's like that somebody's actually you know using her for something. Yes. I mean, he or he remembers when she was she was the most exciting actress on earth for about I don't know. I'd say most of the nineties. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, and she actually was the woman giving the best performances in movies from any country for for ten years. I mean, it just people really didn't like her because she was too out there. And, you know, and then there were the the people who, like me, I mean, I was a little bit like this. I was always kind of rooting for her to be in a hit movie, but then that meant being in a hit movie, and she just seemed like somebody completely antithetical to that. So she'd show up in something like Single White Female playing, like, a much less developed version of things she'd been doing on the margins of the movies for so long. Um, I mean, or not for so long, but for, for a while. Um, or she'd show up in a legitimate, straight-up Hollywood movie like Backdraft and be the single worst performance in it. Because um, that's just not what she does. Um, but yeah, I mean, anybody who doesn't know that Jennifer Jason Lee was the was the SHIT for, for a while, hopefully will be reminded when they see her in this movie. I don't know, maybe, uh, hopefully she's good. Um, yeah, I wanted them to talk more about her. I just wanted to know, like, what because you, you you know Charles, you know uh, Tarantino's a Charles Williford fan, so I wonder if he's a Miami Blues fan. Oh yeah, I mean Miami Blues was the, I mean not the beginning of, it was the beginning of that run for her. Miami Blues. Yeah, that's. I'm it, trying that's... to think, like, yeah, Last Exit to Brooklyn, Miami Blues. Um, there was something else from that '91. And, am I wrong to era. still kind of really like Single White Female? Like no, it's not. It's not wrong. I just remember being a like a, a like twelve year old or a thirteen year old, and just being like, "Oh man, sellout." <laughs> of course you were. That, why am I not surprised? <laughs> but that I still fla- went. That is the flashback of young Wesley in the biopic. <laughs> it's just he's watching single white female, being like, <sighs> "Barbay Schroeder, you guys all suck." Knock off Fatal Attraction. Give me a break. But that was a, that was at a time when like everybody had to do a Fatal Attraction knockoff. Yeah, I just feel and like that's one of the better Fatal Attraction knockoffs. That's above. That's above. I just always remember it not getting to the place where it needed to go. I wanted it to be crazier or something. I don't know. I felt like it wasn't. And she was too insane from the jump 
that I would never have let her move in with me in the first place. And it's a kind of it's relying on Bridget Fonda being an idiot for That's too fair. long. And I just hate it when when the thing from hell is so, is so obviously from hell and the person I mean the reason fatal attraction is such a great model was because the from hellness of the Glenn Close character in that movie was hot to Michael Douglas. Like the forbidden, oh, we're, we've gone off on a tangent. But. This is yeah. By the way, welcome to the no shenanigans, no tangents episode. <laughs> we're doing really well with that, but it's no, it's true. Yeah, she's, the crazy was hot. That's the point. Anyway, right. Anyway, uh, if you haven't read the Tarantino piece, we'll put a we'll put a link to it on the show page. Um, oh, I just also wanted to say before we go really quickly that this point about the about the complaints about superheroes taking over the movies and blah 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 blah. I mean, I think those com- those the, the superhero comic book Marvel complaint is not illegitimate, but I also think that I've been thinking about this a lot. Like 2015 has been a really awesome year for movies that did not involve capes and uniforms and tights and stuff or Marvel for that matter. And um you just I mean a lot of those movies are now what we what we would formally classify as just Hollywood movies, but they're now reclassified given the way the business model works oh, you mean the part, independent films you mean the part where he's talking about the things that would have once been yeah the the, the, the that kids are all right section the the section um, of where he's like talking about the redefinition of oscar bait is basically everything yes, else now everything else right whereas before something like the kids are all right his point is that that would have just been a movie um and you know that through the momentum of people's enthusiasm for it or whatever would have I mean I don't know I feel like that movie sort of got to the Oscars on its own it wasn't necessarily Oscar bait um it movie that came out in the summer showed up at Sundance it wasn't I think that was a more organic Oscar nominee versus something like the King's Speech which is like hatched in a lab for the Academy Awards it's reverse engineered from yeah right starting working backwards from the Oscars it's going to win uh, yeah uh, it's weird that well it's basically that like we only have two ways of talking about these things right it's either this is going to be a huge superhero movie and it's going to spawn sequels and what are the you know what's all, all the, uh, the or it's Oscar bait or we don't talk about it right right like there's no place for a tequila sunrise to go now <laughs> like it no I'm I'm serious I know like, I know exactly what you mean I just that was, you just can't you couldn't get Pacific Heights to happen because nobody in it has a chance at an Oscar. You know, Michael du- Michael Douglas, Michael Keaton would wouldn't make that movie now because I mean, no shots to Michael Keaton. I'm just saying, it's not his fault. Like I just feel like it's harder to get a movie like Pacific Heights off the ground than it now than it was in 1990 when Melanie Griffith, Matthew Modine, and Michael Keaton were all things. Um, that's my only point. But I feel like this year has been really good for that. Like there's a there's a big sort of middle tier of 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 movie that we now call an independent movie that really is just a hollywood movie that was totally independently financed and picked up by a by a by a mini major studio um anyway thanks tarantino for uh you know making us aware of of your feelings about the state of American movie going. Yeah, I hope he's not discouraged from doing more of these things by you know, the kind of silliness of their. <laughs> oh, reaction. you mean Q and A's? No, I hope not. I yeah, I'll read anything. I mean, it's like he's he's standing for the newsroom and he's just objectively wrong about that, but it's still really. Oh, fun he's to totally. Read. But his point about the about like him being Thelma to to Sorkin's Louise and just going into the Grand Canyon with this guy because he's a great writer of dialogue is is a good point. 
I just, I don't dis, I don't, I disagree with him. But you know, I'm just as guilty of. I've got my newsroom somewhere. <laughs> I have many, you know, all, <laughs> many liar. things You're such a liar. that I will ride off the cliff for. Um, anyway, we'll be right back. We're going to talk about Mistress America and American Ultra very quickly. This is the house. Hello. What are you doing here? Who are these people? Tracy's mom is marrying my dad. Tony drove Nicoletta's jealous. Hi, I'm Tracy. Hi, Mamie Claire. Nicolette. Mamie Claire. I'm Tony. And wait, Ma- oh, don't tell me, Mamie Claire. Alex, I told you not to do this. I told you not to have a double feature of two movies with the word America in the title. But you don't listen to me. That was it. Was the double feature was coincidental? That just happened. But I did. Me not listening to you was deliberate. <laughs> I didn't mean. I didn't plan to see both of these at the same time. But it was literally. I came out of one, and the next one was starting in like seven minutes. And I said, "Okay, I got to do this because I got to know. I got to know what's." You know, and what I was sort of secretly hoping was that I would really be into it, and then we could argue about its merits. I can't do that, unfortunately. <laughs> that's that's not going to happen. But um, after I saw Mistress America, which we'll talk about right now, I saw American Ultra. And speaking of those, you know, those movies that don't, you know, it, 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 I was thinking about it when we were talking about Tarantino because it, 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 Max Landis, who wrote this movie, who wrote American Ultra, is out there sort of saying like, well, the fact that this movie didn't succeed, I guess you can't make original movies anymore. You can't do anything. That's oh, not are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. No, he's absolutely wrapped himself in is that flag. Is for real? Yeah. Well, look, okay, that dude is like, you can ask that question 10 billion times to the, the, the to Max Landis. Uh, that, that He will give you an opportunity to ask, is this dude for real? Oh. It's weak if you pay attention. Okay, so uh, you saw you American unfollow. Ultra yeah. and Mistress America, same day. Same day. American Ultra being the story of, I mean, it's so spoilable, but if you have any plans to see it, we're not going to bother spoiling it, but we'll just say that it's about Kristen. It's a movie in which Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart are young stoners in love only because they keep telling us they're stoners, not because we see them actually get stoned that much. Well, they get stoned like a lot in like one very small scene. Right. Right. The first three scenes, basically. Um, and then you know, from there on out, they're just they're just referred to as the as the stoners. From there um, on out, they're just high, man. They're just floating. It's, they don't have time to to restone to deal with this uh, situation. <laughs> to restone. Can't. Yeah, it's hard. Restone. The restone is difficult anyway. But uh, look, we'll talk about that in a second. We'll get there in a minute. And like, yeah, Amer- so American Ultra spoilers are coming. At some point, when we start talking about American Ultra, we will have to sort of. I just said we weren't going to. I have to. Because right. there has, I mean, you have to talk about. So the, I mean, no, but the thing is, like any kind of plot summary, I feel like this is the kind of movie that will be, you know, it's impossible. It's impossible. I know. The back so we're only going to talk about it for five minutes. Spoiler. You, you go. I did not like this movie. I thought it was stupid. I felt like, I mean, I don't even see a way in which it. it, it I mean, I guess I a teeny tiny bit see the way it could have worked as what it was if it just like got rid of all of the action stuff or made the action stuff funny and made and just pulled out more of the comedy but it's so dead serious about being (laughs) this weird born identity style action kicker in the facer that 
I just couldn't take the rest of it seriously, and all of the performances are bad. Yeah, that's all. That's all true. That's all true. And I don't have. I have no defense for any of those things. Like you want, you you want the Edgar Wright version. Like you can see, like when they're you know when they're kind of oh I'm going to use this frying pan to curve a bullet or whatever. Like oh my god, that was the highlight of the stunt crew's year. <laughs> I mean, and that. they did a good job, but you could tell the movie was like, this is this is this is what we got. And I, I was impressed. They used a skillet to to shoot somebody. It was <laughs> no, it's you're, you're definitely by that by the point in the movie where that happens, you're you're kind of feeling like, oh, something something cool needs to happen soon. I mean, you're right. Also, like I, I made I don't normally I try normally to not read your review until after I've seen things that we're both going to be talking about because I don't want to I don't want to be influenced necessarily. But you said that thing about night shoots for action scenes and then i couldn't not think about the fact that all of the every action scene in this movie has some kind of device in play to sort of like hide the fact that it's jesse eisenberg in an action scene right you know so that you can't there's always some kind of things like to to cut that is a, a forgiving uh atmospheric element like darkness or smoke or black light or something like that so you can't really see that this is you know, probably not a very convincingly blocked action scene because they're not is the thing there's they're, they're, they're really kind of the, the whole police station thing where they're trying to do the Terminator and it's just not oh. not playing it was weird though because like I, I still for some reason as I was sitting there I, I had a weird this is the only real reason that I want to talk about this movie that I even think that I want to bother with it, you know, because I, 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 I think the the Max Landis comment is you know self-explanatorily dumb. Um, I had a weird pang of '90s nostalgia for going to see all of these kinds of movies. Yes, I get it. No, nope. this yep. is. I never thought that I would feel like. A, a, a sort of a, you know oh this is this reminds me of like you know early Richard Kelly. You know, mm-hmm, and then like, mm-hmm. which is like the tail end of that, but also like specifically like a life less ordinary came up for me in a yep. big way. And thinking I, you know, about- it's funny. I was writing about the, I was writing about this exact type of movie and I was like, what is the Ewan McGregor Cameron Diaz thing that I couldn't remember? The- and I, just, <laughs> Nobody I was like, remembers. nope, moving on to feeling Minnesota, which is way worse. <laughs> I don't even. Yeah, well, it's life less hard. Does, does, does Delroy Lindo play an angel in that movie, or am I crazy? I, no, I am think I you're hallucinating. right. There's a couple. Of, the, the, I feel like he was in a good angel run. I think he was also an angel in. Uh, oh, I'm going to say it was Michael, but I feel like that's probably he probably was not in, even in Michael. Um, anyway, so I, wait, I mean, so your nostalgia did what for you though? Did it make you? Did this movie make you? want to see those movies again not did it like <laughs> not at all but it reminded me i mean look that was sort of that was my that was the very kind of beginning of my cinematic understanding was uh, spotting the you know or the the pieces of other films kind of half digested in those movies and or at least like learning to think critically and being like oh this is a pretty good i mean it comes up for the in the tarantino thing he somebody like they asked him Lane Brown asked him about his uh, I don't I forget how he phrases it exactly but like about his favorite Tarantino ripoff movies and he's oh I thought that was a great question I've always wanted to ask him that question that's a great question I never like I interviewed him once I feel like I didn't do that for some reason I don't know why but uh, because it was it's something I've wondered forever because I think and we did actually on Grantly we did a thing about it where we we did a roundup where everybody wrote about their favorite post Tarantino kind of ripoff movie Um, U-Turn by the way 
Yes. His, I was, yes. His answer was love in a 45, which is a great answer. It's a great answer because it's totally out of left field, and it's probably the only acceptable answer, too. Yeah, I mean, it would Except be, for U-Turn. Well, yeah, no, but a U-Turn is almost, I mean, U-Turn is such an Oliver Stone movie, but it's just weird yes. because it's, so it's, it almost doesn't count. But it's there. Was, it's that period where Oliver Stone was trying to be Tarantino. It comes out of that same that same moment. You know, it's like it's right after Nixon. Like God, that's a good movie. That's a good run. Yeah. Those are such good movies. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that was the. It was just a weird. I, it was a weird thing to be kind of yanked back to because this feels so much like other than the fact that it stars Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart, who were babies when that when during this period, who were being born as those movies were coming out. It feels like it could have been one of those. It feels like it's somehow been sitting in a drawer since the post Pulp Fiction moment when it was like anything, blood guns, bullets, and octane, bring it on, <laughs> like that. Bring yeah. it on, not bring it on the movie, but you know, bring it on the the, the command. Um, uh, yeah, but I have nothing. I have nothing else. Kind of a waste of Walton Goggins. Although it's cool that Walton Goggins is is an actor who can be instantly recognizable by his. Uh, you know, dental work his, his silhouette yeah and his dental work oh, yeah. yeah it wants there's like it's it's almost there's a i like the idea of these kind of interesting assassins with crazy names but they don't do anything with it it's not developed at all it's just it like it it could be like this real coen brothers looney tunes action movie and it didn't really get there for me but i did i was i was taken back in a way that i did not expect and obviously it's also the reason i'm taken back is that that's what they're going for like clearly they are you know like landis is ripping off there's a arquette gandolfini ripoff toward the end with kristen stewart the moment you know where she's like spitting in his face and everything and about that that's totally trying to be the end of true romance eventually he puts on a hawaiian shirt yeah, whatever this movie. Now, I, I, in the course of talking about it, I've decided I shouldn't. We shouldn't have talked about it. Uh, let's talk about Mistress America, which I did. Please, like. you did like it. I did. Yeah, I, I did, did too. I really. I, I, it. I feel like this is the sort of movie that you know. It's funny because Bombach Noah Bombach, who wrote and directed this movie, he wrote the movie with Greta Gerwig, who stars in the film and directed it, and he comes up in Tarantino's piece as somebody being as a contemporary. It's phrased in a in a way that that was sort of disappointing in the answer because, as Lane Brown pointed out, um, they basically basically started making movies at the same time. Like he's not a young American director the way I think Lane Brown meant to ask him who his favorite young American director is. Um, but I love that that Bombach has sort of reached this cruising altitude where like he, nothing scares him anymore. And even when what he's doing isn't working, hopefully he will continue to work consistently enough for him to just keep trying stuff and, until, you know, he gets an entire movie that coheres from beginning to end. Um, but he doesn't even, I mean, he's doing things that great European directors were doing with like people like Bunuel and to some extent Godard and just like having fun with random ideas and random set pieces in order to make some larger sort of political or cultural point. Um, I really, I, I like that he, that he went for that, even though I don't, I mean, the movie's not perfect. It doesn't hit all the things ideally, but I feel like these two people, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach are really creatively good for each other. Um, and I just feel like it sort of pushed him as a director and as a, and as a comedian um, into some interesting situations that are just 
that nobody else in this country would try to do. Yeah, I I do too. I like that. It's it, yeah. It just seems like it doesn't seem overburdened. I don't. Uh, yeah, there's things about it that I don't think are perfect. You know, I don't think the. Well, I think the first. Basically, th- we should say this is the story of yeah, let's, a. Let's do that. Uh, seventeen-year-old college freshman played by Lola Kirk, who moves to NYU. Um, oh wait, is it NYU? It's. I don't know. If they they ever say, but it looks. It say. looks like NYU. some some Manhattan college. Um, and there's, there's no Columbia ishness to, right? No, I think it's, I mean, it so. seems, I can't tell. I think they just never but, say what it is, but it's supposed right. to be, you know, it's downtown. It, it's some New York college. Uh, she has a sister-in-law to, or, or sister-in-law to be, um, or a stepsister to be, sorry. Her, her Lola Kirk's character, Tracy's mother is getting married to Brooke, Brooke's character's father. And Brooke is played by little, uh, Greta Gerwig and the two of these these two women sort of strike up this this older sister younger sister dynamic in which the younger sister is enjoying the time out the night out they have together and the night out becomes a morning after and they spend successively more time with each other and it's clear that Tracy is sharper and smarter and faster than Brooke but Brooke is more performatively ambitious and more performatively ignorant and more perform. She's basically performatively more everything than, than Tracy is. Yeah. I mean, she has from the moment she is introduced, (laughs) she has one of the greatest entrances in a movie this year, (laughs) (laughs) which just, I mean, I just LOL in this theater with two other people. (laughs) She, I don't want to, I actually am not going to describe it. I'm not going to describe it. I'm just going to let it happen. Well, it's a perfect... I mean, it's a harmless description because you kind of have to see her do it. <laughs> I know, but it's just when you when she first walks it, like it's it is just it, it like somehow it, it, without it, it. I don't know. They just they it's a perfect way to do it. It doesn't it doesn't break the form of the movie at all because it's exciting. no. It is a place no. that it's a real it's a real location. <laughs> a thing you can do in a real location in New York if you have it going on, but just for a second, it just elevates, and you're just you, you know. But you would never go there if you lived in New York. Well, no, I used to work. Yeah, I used to work there though, so I was there all the time. And t- but you would terrible. never do what she did. No, I would not. I would not. Right, which I, is sort of the, what the charm of that moment is, of course. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So that that works. Yeah, I I found that character to be incredibly recognizable as. A New York, just a New York type that you, you can't not encounter if you live there for any length of time. There's a certain, t- and, and uh, what I, what I'm thinking about is, and I'm sure you have examples of this in your mind, but the sort of eternal freelancer who is not tied down to some dumb job like you are, like I always was when I was there, you know, uh, but who works three times as hard to enjoy that kind of freedom and like has like 10,000 entrepreneurial dreams at all times. There's like, you know, right. the, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, there's a, there's a gamut, right? Because she's very ambitious. Sometimes it's, I'm not talking about just slackers. That's not what I mean. I this mean, is the opposite of being a slacker. No, it's one of those things where it's like actually not having some sort of rudimentary job that you go to every day is a lot harder in a way. And like, you have to sort of, you have to be, you know, 10 times more ambitious and like trying 10, you know, and and ten times more delusional sometimes. Like that's the other thing that comes with it is that sometimes you have to just be like oblivious to certain realities and certain kinds of things. And that's you know, it's a really interesting mix of characteristics that I have not really seen before. Or I can't recall really seeing in a movie before. Well, because right, the temperament to pull this off in a movie is a screwball comedy temperament, right? You kind of have to be what in a classical screwball comedy is a is a dingbat. 
you i mean what what the movie would say or like a highly motivated professional focused on only her career and so i mean it's like she's judy holiday on the one hand and rosalind russell on the other like at the same time but with this sort of charm and the softness of a terry gar like i mean they're just these i mean there's several types of of ways into a screwball comedian's performance um and she has found all three points of entry and just conflated these characters into one person. And it's weird because the conflation of those those types does sort of become like a person who exists in the world. But it's also hard to, to pin down in a film because, you know, with a film, I mean, typically with an American film in, in Hollywood anyway, you need a plot. And how in a plot does that woman fit? In a normal Hollywood movie, probably a romantic comedy, she'd be Anne Hathaway's roommate or something. Do you know what I mean? Yep. She'd be like the woman who's always on the go, too busy to hang out and stick around. But they'd have this one moment in the apartment where they have a heart-to-heart where Anne Hathaway tells her about the guy who broke her heart. And- Didn't that happen? Didn't Wasn't there a moment when in the, in, in the Greta Gerwig kind of rocket booster moment didn't she wasn't where she, she was yeah every, somebody's somebody's roommate girlfriend wasn't she i feel like uh, is there isn't there some movie where it's like all all the people we don't know what to do with are roommates i feel like like it wasn't mindy Kaling a roommate in the same movie <laughs> I, I feel like yeah i mean <laughs> right you you walk into it's basically a dorm staff by mindy Kaling, <laughs> amy schumer greta gerwig yeah there's all the actors. We know they're we know they're good. We know they're funny. Gabby we don't really Cinebay know. Gabby is down the hallway. <laughs> we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do with you, ladies. So just hang out. That would be. That's what it is. That's the. That's that's the movie that Tina Fey is writing that movie right. Female now. character actress. Uh, hotel, <laughs> Judy dorm. Greer. Judy Greer. Like. They're all in there. It's an apartment building. It's rent control, and then they have to save it. <laughs> They have to I mean, to I, I feel like the, I'm trying to I don't know what that would have been because it's funny because Greta Gerwig, because she toiled, I mean, quote, toiled, unquote, in so-called mumblecore movies for what, three or four years. Um, I mean, she became this thing that people seem to want to have in movies. She got cast in Greenberg and it was kind of like uh, it just kind of happened from there. And I think there's a degree to which she is a lot like Brooke and she is somebody who wants to make work for herself and isn't going to sit around and wait for somebody to make things happen for her. And so her ambition is sort of to her advantage in a lot of ways because she is smart and can create things for herself to do, even if sometimes those things aren't good. But if she thinks she can act opposite Al Pacino in a, in a Philip Roth adaptation, by all means, let me try it. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I, I love that about her. But yeah, this is yeah. This seems like a different. It seems like a different lane. It doesn't feel like uh, you know, uh, I'm like Greta Gerwig doing the the thing that you get Greta Gerwig to do as the best friend. And you know, no, that's no, really I mean, cool about it. she's playing a screwball heroine part. And I mean, by the time they get to this to get to Connecticut, I mean, the plot is pretty simple. Like she needs money to open her restaurant, or else she'll lose the 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 space. And I guess whatever money they put down on it because her boyfriend dumps her. Um, they wind up going to Connecticut to shake down Mamie Claire, uh, Mamie Claire, a friend who, who allegedly stole her, you know, highly successful T-shirt idea. Uh, and so the movie sort of turns in, it turns into a different. It's one of those things that I call like a side A, side B movie. Like you flip the record over. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, 
there's one side of the record, there's one side of the movie, and then you know you have to when that side ends, you turn it over, and it's a totally different movie. Um, there's like you know I can think of ten of those off the top of my head, um, but the second half of this movie is better than the first, I would say, because it's just crazier and funnier and like f- farcier, if that's a word, and it's not. So just go with it. <laughs> I mean, more more farcical. I guess yes, is probably yes. The, it's more farcical. But I like farcier. Um, I, I knew what you meant by farcier. That was cool. I was, I was following. No, it's the, just the, got a really good energy, and it's it's completely unrealistic, and that's its point. It's surrealist more than it's anything else. Right. It does. There's that. There's that weird scene toward the where they're all reading the story. You know, where everybody and by that point, the thing that's great about it. I mean, we're you know, it, it just you have to just go with us on this. But by the time you get to that point where all the farcical things are happening and there's literally, you know, it's, there's upstairs, downstairs, and there's all the kind of classic kind of farce stuff is, is, is going on. You know who all of those people are so well, both yes. the people that you've spent the whole movie with and the people that you've kind of just been introduced to in that moment. So you're kind of like, oh, there's Karen, Harold, Dylan, and Mamie Claire are all reading the short story. Like there's something about it where like you just, like there's enough repeating of people's names going back and forth in that like it's just it's so it's so well done and i was you know you don't expect that to happen yeah it's a weird kind of theatrical acting too where like it's non-realistic and yet not false and i mean you know if you've seen any of like louis bunuel's um his sort of like bourgeois dinner farces basically um crazier things happen in that movie but there's a way in which you're kind of invested in the nuttiness of the people at the table or in the house um and you feel like you know the types of people they are and you i mean with his movies you're kind of rooting against them because some of them are truly awful and have like awful political ties and that sort of thing but here it's a lot more i mean it's a it's a little it's a little it's much kinder to to the people in the in the scene but the energy is very similar um and i don't know i just i don't know where he goes from here and now i feel like you know i really want to know what he does next and I'm really curious about like who he would try to do it with. But I, I, in some ways, and this is, again, like I'm not taking shots at like David O. Russell, who I think is wonderful and really good at the thing he's become. But I don't know if I want to see, I would love to see him, like I would love to see Noah Bombach continue to do this sort of thing and whatever whatever else you can do with this sort of thing. Like I think while, we, while we're young, it, it sort of, it's again a movie that sort of falls apart in the, in the second half instead of the first. Um, but it is it is not trying for respectability, and I I I love that about him um, right now, and I I hope he continues on that in that direction as opposed to you know doing a, a biopic. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. No, I I I don't like while we're young. I don't I don't think I liked it as much as as you did, and it feels like that to me felt like the exhaustion of the the Greenberg perspective you know it just mm-hmm. it felt that felt like the fumes of, of oh that's that. a really good point yes yeah no that's a great point and Alex. this i mean this like he's it, he's almost it's i mean it's it must be gerwig's perspective in a way because i think it actually has and yep. that's the that's the cool thing like that's what you know i think when while we're young came out i feel like we talked a lot about woody allen and that thing that you can just sort of drop into oh i'm gonna make another 60 movies like this 
in this mm-hmm. in this frame. And that's the, the you know yeah. that's the Woody Allen thing where your perspective never changes, even though like the Woody Allen New York is like nonsensical at this point in relation to reality. He's by the way, he's shooting in my neighborhood uh, in in Los Angeles right now. He's shooting oh. his uh, his Netflix show. Speaking of directors making Netflix shows, so God when I drove you. past the Vista on Sunset Boulevard yesterday, there was a marquee. Uh, showing uh, the woman in red, starring Barbara Stanwyck, because uh, I guess his show is a uh, either a period show or a show where people go to see the woman in red, starring Barbara Stanwyck, a show where rep cinema remains really popular. Um, this <laughs> um, the other thing that's great about this movie, by the way, about uh, uh, um, the the I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember. Oh, Mistress America. Um, yes, we're back there. Everybody's really the the like the literary society being a huge thing on campus and the just the general kind of interest in uh, literary fiction among all of the characters and even yeah, including yeah. the book group, the super the group book group of super smart pregnant women. I really I uh, that seems like the kind of thing that would be annoying, but it's actually really funny because it's just it's you know, it, it's consistent across the whole thing. Yeah, everybody really like reads. That. I mean, it's not I mean, it's a weird sort of self-selecting world, too. Or like everybody's highly literate and aspiring to create in some ways, whether it's a human being or a work of literature. I don't know. I loved, and you know, there's a lot of everybody in this movie is making something. Um, and except for poor Nicolette, who is just trying to make her relationship work and can't. Um, Although Nicolette's another, she's also a writer. It's established that she's in that. Oh yes, too. that's like, true. That is true. That is true. That she is just true. doesn't get a moment to you know to to say that. But yeah, it's like I mean, I guess while we're young is like that too. It's that ad, like the, the one part of his adoration for that whole social circle is that they're all making stuff and creating their own things. And this is an extension of that. I don't know. This just feels like a, like t- just a ten times better movie though. I agree. Um, okay, we'll be right back. We're going to talk about uh, oh. Before we go, I was going to, I was going to, did you, are you a Francis Ha person, by the way? I am a that's, Francis that's Ha person. That's their first movie that, that they worked on together as writer, director, as co-writers and his, and him directing. You did, you're in. I am, I'm in, yes, I'm in on Francis Ha. It's only, I've been pretty in on Bombach for the last, the last pretty the run, however many it is, except for movie. While We're Young is the only one that it, it feels a little... I, uh, even as I was as I was watching that, I was like, oh, this is it didn't. It, you know, I mean, I, I think I said this on the show, but I think uh, while we're young to me felt like I'm going to slum it a little bit and make a comedy. And this felt like a comedy. Mistress yes. America just felt like I'm, I am I know what I'm doing now. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to sort of do, be, you know, be slapstick about it or anything like that. I'm just going to I'm just going to do a comedy my way and like, a, you know. Although yeah, it's like the the the, the bombachness of it. I feel like it's you know like you, you got to probably give credit Gerwig most of the credit. It seems like it's her it's her point of view. No, I mean there's movie. a demonstrable difference between the ones that she's in and worked on with him and the ones that she is not in and hasn't. Um, anyway, we'll be right back. We're going to talk about Carly Jepsen really quickly. So this can just be an extended uh, jam of the week segment. Or anything like that, but I did. I did give you some instructions. I, I, I sort of ordered you to listen. You to sure the, did. The Carly Rae Jepsen. I'm sorry if I was belligerent. About it. No, it was a pleasure. Like I would have done it anyway. I, 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 I'm rooting for this woman who. It's weird to be rooting for a person who you know has the earworm of the century, um. And, you know, all of the sort of philosophical, music-critical questions that that raises. But, yes, you gave me an assignment. 
And I will now I, I will extend that assignment to, to to you. I I love this record. I have a I just I, I have been reading. You know, the coverage sort of led me to believe it's one of those flashpoints where it's it becomes a you know a point of argument between the, the poptimists and the the people who disagree with them. And I don't want to venture back into that can of worms, but it made me really happy. I, I it doesn't. It, I agree. It's just, I'm with you. Yeah. I really, really, really. Because the other thing I've been listening to, this is my, <laughs> I, I'm not going to do it. You should just finish the sentence. And you've got four more reels. I to go. really, 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 really think this uh, record has uh, great strengths and uh, lasting staying power. See, the problem, the thing is that I've been, it, it's been, I've been listening to the, the, the Weekend album a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I need, and I've been listening to a lot of The Weekend in general. Because I'm trying to write about this album, and I'm trying to get you know sort of get back into. I've been listening to the EPs and everything, so it's been a real nice. You need something, something kind of something kind of cleansing, and you know, like you know, an up and happy after you've kind of you know lived in that. Oh, it's so funny that you're putting it that way because I too am like feeling like this is the complete. This is exactly the palate cleanser I want for what I've been calling drip drip R and B. Like with, yeah. I mean, again, this is like the fifth time I've said I don't mean any disrespect to the people, to such people as FKA Twigs and Tanache, but I mean, I just, I need, I need, I, I don't know, I need there to be some, 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 some spine to this, to my music sometimes, and not all the time. I mean, this is of course the problem that I had with the original incarnations of the weekend, and it, I mean, I haven't finished the new record, which you'll talk about next week, but, um. There's something about her, Carly Rae Jepsen's sort of pureness and innocence. It doesn't feel like a construction, even though, you know, it, she's a pop star. And so there's obviously some a degree of, there's a great degree of construction. And listening to this record, it, it reminds me of like f- five other people, but they're not the obvious people. Um, there's like, they're people like Shanice and Martika and Mandy Moore and Debbie Gibson <laughs> yes, I was going to say, I think one thing that did happen for me as I was listening to it was I, I felt I felt a little bit of shame kind of ebbing away that I'd sort of lived with for a long time. And I, I felt mm. that you know, and, and, and what it was specifically, it was the shame of having been more of a Debbie Gibson person than a Tiffany person <gasps> as it was happening, which I that now recognize fair. to be no, which I now recognize to be wrong. At like, the time, it seemed fair because because and what what was your rationale? I don't know necessarily. I mean, it was I, I I don't I can't I couldn't articulate, but it was like those things are you know I was ten, so it's a pretty instinctive. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't based on oh I think uh, you know I feel like uh, Debbie Gibson's arrangements are less baroque or something like it wasn't you know because there was the thing like Debbie Gibson was a play your own instruments person. Like, she was she, an, she was authentic, yeah, right? She, I, I mean that was the thing. So it might have just been authenticity fetishism, like you know sort of like yep. I'd been uh, that early it kicked in. For it's me. so crazy how it just becomes. It like you were. We are obsessed with the real, the realness of the real. I couldn't have the said idea that. that no, of course not. But the but that was the thing. Like, oh, Tiffany became popular because she covered a song that every our parents already knew. Yeah, but Debbie Gibson. She's doing her own thing. She's from Long Island. She plays her own stuff. <laughs> Only in my dreams. I don't know. It's just there's something realer about Debbie Gibson. Even though, like, if you listen to both those first records now. The Tiffany record is shockingly really good still. 
Yeah. And it's like, it's, um, yeah. Tiffany can sing. Just, again, no disrespect to the Deborah Gibsons of the world, but Tiffany can sing. I mean, and she had, like, those, I think there are nine songs in that record. Um, they're all, like, I'd say eight of them are excellent. And oh, one is a cover. Yeah. Anyway, Carly Rae Jepsen. We're talking about Tiffany versus Debbie Gibson, and I feel like Carly Rae Jepsen is up against... It's like Carly Rae Jepsen versus everybody else who does a thing that, that she does, but they do it somewhat more... I mean, Taylor, Taylor Swift, for instance, is, you know, the Debbie Gibson, not necessarily to Carly Rae Jepsen's Tiffany, but, but maybe... Yeah, I don't. I mean, no. Well, yeah, because like th- that's the parallel, I guess, because she's also writing her whatever, playing instruments, like doing something. No, I, yeah, I don't know that. It, I don't know that it works necessarily. But you said Debbie Gibson, and I was kind of like, this is, you know, it's well, okay. you picked up on it, yeah. and I felt the same thing, right? Yeah, it's there. Um, it's there, but there's not actually. That's the that's the thing is that nobody. It's almost like you know part of why this record feels amazing is that nobody else, everybody else wants out of that lane the second they're in that lane. Mm. You know, in terms ah, of the that's pop. a really that's a great point. They're all kind of moving out, and so it's like, oh, here's the you know here's the the Kendrick verse, and like here's anything like you know Taylor Swift like wants like you know it, it, obviously like she it's she wants to be on the, yeah. the you know the next biggest stage. There's no childish Gambino appearance on the Carly Rae Jepsen record. Yeah, I mean there is like some of this you know there's some sounds that are pretty hip sounds and i think that's part yeah of why but those are, aren't those are but, i don't know those are sounds that taylor swift also wants amazingly enough do you know what i mean like it's not like i mean they're all sort of sonically in the same neighborhood um i think carly jepson her 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 debbie gibson is basically herself you know i think it's that song it's the it's um you know the song it's call me maybe call me maybe yeah it's like that is i mean her only her only real competition is that song and so, really, she's kind of a little bit like Alanis Morissette or or Joan Osborne in a weird way. Like, like, how do you have a career after, you know, a song that ate the world? Um, and you know, I don't think Alanis Morissette ever recovered from that. I mean, the album for like principally, but then the song too. Um, like Alanis Morissette couldn't leave a show now and not have performed. You ought to know. I mean, she might try. Maybe she's done it, but. I'm sure people were like, who does she think she is? I'm sure people yeah, threw things if that happened. <laughs> um, anyway, um, we have to be on the verge of leaving. But our jam, our jam is a person this week. <laughs> Carla Rae Jepsen, all of her, she is our jam. Uh, and I also have to, I'm surprised Taylor Swift does not have a saxophone on 1989. So Carla Rae Jepsen is definitely winning the saxophone wars. Uh, there are at least two appearances of saxophones on this record, I think. Am I wrong about that? I know the first song, which is um, which is great. There's definitely and, saxophone, which is which is just all the way back. We talked about it last week with Cheerleader. It's you know, it's re- it's returning, which is back. which is good news. It was you know, I mean, when they laughed at Lady Gaga, that's true. She had well, she I got, mean, she was out. I mean, she went all the way there, but she went with the best. Yeah, she had the big man, but they still people still scoffed. Yeah, who's scoffing now? Yeah, who's scoffing now, America? People who still hate the saxophone—that's that's who. Jazz band phobes. Um. Anyway, that's our show this week. Thanks for listening. We're gonna go out with um, track one from 
Carly Rae Jepsen's record, which is also, I think, a single, Run Away With Me. Um, they're all singles. They're all, that's, that's, ain't it the truth? That's the, that's the way to think about it. This is, this is Thriller. We're, got, we're getting six, seven big hit songs. The first run, that first like six, seven songs on this record is pretty unimpeachable. Yeah. It's just, that, that's the thing. It's, it's like, it's like maybe three songs too long. And that bonus track, the first bonus track should just be on the album. I don't know what she was thinking with that. I guess with bonus track, who cares anymore? Anyway, Joe Fuentes, you're awesome. It's a pleasure working with you. Dave Jacoby, same thing. Jim Cunningham, you're the best. Alex. Wesley Morris. A universe unto yourself. Um, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.